This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as proud as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. Thanks to all our members for making our truth journey a reality. To listen to segment two of tonight's interview, go to our website at veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. And I'm proud to announce that Sanitas Radio started this week. Go to sanitasradio.com and find out who's coming up next. I want to declassify the secrets to health and longevity and bring sanity to this chaotic world and balance our mind, body, and spirit. Check it out and see who's coming up next. And if you enjoy it, and I know you will, subscribe. And for MMS, our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material and phytovitamins feel the difference. Visit the Veritas store and also the sponsors page. To get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight we'll go deep inside the true underworld, the undercover world of a former DEA agent who at one point was responsible for what could be the biggest drug deal in history, $3.6 billion, and bringing multiple countries down for a real win on the side of the people. 
only to find out our own government is really not interested in winning this war or any war. Tonight, we'll discuss a first-hand account of the sabotage of a DEA undercover sting operation that threatened to expose U.S. government ties to drug-financed governments around the world. For this and much more, tonight's special guest is Michael Levine, right now on Veritas. Michael Levine called America's top undercover agent for 25 years by 60 Minutes, is a New York Times best-selling author of Deep Cover, The Big White Lie and Triangle of Death, and one of the most decorated undercover agents in the history of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. He is active as a court-qualified expert and trail consultant in covert operations, international narcotics trafficking, informant handling, and police use of force. He is currently lecturing on undercover survival tactics and informant handling for the U.S. Department in Brazil. His New York City radio show can be heard on WBAI 99.5 FM. And to learn more about Michael Levine's work, buy his books or listen to his radio program. All links to his website are linked at ours, veritasradio.com, for your convenience. And directly from New York City, I would like to introduce Michael Levine. Hello, Michael, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, thanks for having me on, Mel. It's my pleasure. Michael, I finally read the book last night. I finished it last night, and I have to say, my suspicions of the involvement that our own government has with the drug trade were confirmed. Before we start talking about your journey, I just want to make something very clear. Is there a parallel here between the Vietnam War and the so-called drug war? Um, I, I don't know, Mel. I mean, I, the what happened to myself and, the, and the, those agents who took part in the, the two undercover operations that uh, uh, I wrote about, a, one in the, the Big White Lie and the other in the book Deep Cover, uh, were flabbergasting to us. They blew us away. Uh, here we are, a bunch of people, a bunch of uh, an, a group of men and women who had taken an oath to defend the Constitution and the people, and who believed in the war on drugs, and and uh, we had the glorious opportunity to, as far as I know, the only two cases ever in the history of DEA where uh, any reader can see we were in position to really destroy cocaine production, really destroy it and put everybody into everyone uh, in the governments of Bolivia and Mexico and Panama away in jail uh, and our own government sabotaged us put our lives out to risk uh, made attempts on our lives so when we live through that that alone is is mind blowing you can't i couldn't reference anything uh to vietnam whether it's the same thing or not but i did have an experience in uh, Southeast Asia early in my career that you might find interesting. Uh, the case was United States versus John Edward Davidson and Liang Tu, and it involved uh, the first time in in my career, I think actually one of the very few times in history for any of our federal agents, where it, an undercover agent, that is not an informant. You, you know, you, you have all of these paid informants coming out and writing books about how they are undercover agents for the U.S. government. 
technically, I suppose they are, but the vast majority of them are criminals who will lie and do anything to, uh, you know, implicate raw, uh, innocent people, etc., to make a buck or glorify themselves. But an agent, someone who had taken an oath to defend the Constitution, someone who carried a badge to go undercover in what we refer to as deep cover, where you go into another country, you give up your badge, you give up any connection with the U.S. government, and you're literally at the mercy of the people in that country who are above the law, uh, people who, if they find out, or if they realize, or if they even suspect that you are lying, and that you are not who you say you are, and of course you're, you're posing, or I was always posing as a mafioso, a criminal, uh, if they thought for a second that I was lying, I would disappear. And, you know, it's sort of cliche, you know, the government will disallow all knowledge. Well, I knew that, you know, that would happen. So you end up literally acting for your life. And the first time this happened to me was during the Vietnam War, when I arrested in New York a man by the name of John Edward Davidson, who had three kilos of heroin concealed in a false bottom suitcase. Now, I was very good at flipping people. You arrest them. Flipping means you turn them into an informant. And uh, John Edward Davidson was a combat veteran from Vietnam who had been discharged and continued to make trips from Bangkok to uh, U.S. And he had something like seven trips in his passport when I picked him up at the airport. And I'll make a long story very short. Uh, we were able to make a controlled delivery of the three kilos of heroin that night. We arrested uh, the people who financed his operation. And after that went down successfully, I asked John if he would introduce me to his source. Well, his source was uh, a fellow called Gary and Mr. Gah, G-E-H, in, in Bangkok. Uh, he wrote a letter to them, and in it we took a, outside of the courthouse under a palm tree in uh, Florida where the controlled delivery had gone down. He and I took a photo arm in arm, and we cut the photo in half, and he sent half the photo to these uh, these Thailand drug traffickers. A couple of months later, um, I was working. I was working, by the way, for a legendary narcotic investigator by the name of Al Seeley who he he I was in the hard narcotic smuggling unit of customs and we at that time were at war with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for turf and and uh budget and glory and so Al sent me to Thailand on a tourist passport. Everything was fake and we the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics had an office there and I, I was uh, we couldn't tell them I was there because he, we, the uh, the customs hard narcotics unit trusted the Federal Bureau of Narcotics less than we trusted drug dealers, and so I end up in Bangkok. With the only person who knew I was there was the customs attaché, and I'm living with Chinese drug dealers in Bangkok. Bottom line is, I was very good at what I did, Mel. I was good, a good con man. I I I speak fluent Spanish. I, I'm conversant in Italian. Uh, I look like anything. I mean, you could see my photo in the in the books. And I, I have gotten over. That is, I have passed as just about everything. And these Chinese drug dealers really liked me and wanted to impress me. And 
hanging with them and setting up a drug deal. They wanted they wanted to convince me that my mafia uh, could deal directly with them and get large amounts of heroin. Now, this was at a time in our history when cocaine was called a kitty drug, and American GIs were starting to a massive number of American GIs were becoming heroin addicts and heroin was flooding the United States and and President Nixon had declared war on drugs and you know telling us that these evil dark foreigners were, were the real culprits and so uh, I felt like I was doing God's work now, on top of that I had a my brother David he was a heroin addict and he would later commit suicide not too many years later and uh, after 19 years of drug addiction and say, I just can't stand the drugs anymore. That was his last note. So I was kind of uh, on a mission from God, you might say. I thought all of this was real. President Nixon's words were my marching orders. Uh, this, the drug war is the number one priority. It's the number one threat to American security, blah, blah, blah. blah. Well, the Chinese drug dealers that I'm hanging with they invite me to Chiang Mai. That's up on the Golden Triangle area. <clears throat> it's the end end of the line for the uh, Mao tribesmen who were trafficking in uh, heroin and opium and raw, raw base opium across Southeast Asia. And it's where they were converting it, the raw base opium, to heroin, which would later be transported worldwide. A good portion of it, of course, going to the United States. Suddenly, my operation, this is the first time an international operation started to just fall apart, and I'm not given any money. A lot of this was covered in a book called Undercover by Donald Goddard, a British writer. And uh, he, I didn't even have money to pay my hotel bill, but I was going to, if I had to spend my own money, I was going up to Chiang Mai with these two drug dealers. Suddenly, I get word that I have to be at the American embassy four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I zig and zag through streets of Bangkok in the middle of the night to make sure I'm not followed because these guys, would, they would kill you and uh, you, you'd just disappear in Bangkok. And I knew at the time, I, you know, I was married, had two little children, and uh, I knew I was gone. Uh, I was, I knew that one mistake and I was gone. And we cut to me meeting my first CIA agent in Bangkok. And I'm at the American Embassy. And I'm there with Joe Jenkins, who, by the way, had one arm. He was a legendary one arm uh, customs narcotic officer. And uh, there I meet a nameless CIA agent, except you could see that the guy was kind of uh, living out what, you know, I, I, I've, I've said this often. Heaven protect us from men who live the illusion of danger. And you might he might have been describing everybody who's a CIA officer. Uh, he he's there wearing a jungle jacket and boots and you know he's got this gun under his hip and he's sitting on a desk looking at me and we're the only three in the office in the in, in the embassy other than the marines at that time of night and he says very simply you're not going to Chiang Mai and I said well why so they they want to take me to he, they invited me to Chiang Mai to see what they call the factory the people manufacturing more heroin than we had ever seized in the United States in, in our history. And uh, here's my chance to go there so that we can destroy it, identify it, locate it, uh, deal with the people involved, get them all indicted, at least in the United States. 
you know, and go move for their extradition or something. You know, that's what you, that's what I had taken an oath to do, and that's what I believed in. And he said to me, pretty simply, he said, we can't cover you up there. We've already lost people up there in Chiang Mai. And as crazy as I was, Mel, I, I said, I'm, you know, you're not getting out of this life alive. And, you know, if I, this is what I took an oath for. I'm not, I, I didn't take this to be safe. This is what I want to do. I'll let that be my choice. And he got very exasperated with me. And then he said, Levine, we got, we have your record. You just, you, we know your military. You understand that you don't understand. You don't know the whole, the big picture, don't you? And I said, yes, because that was my training to that point. I didn't know the big picture, uh, the, uh, the uh, customs enforcement section, hard narcotics was a paramilitary organization, just as DEA is. And I knew to follow, that you, you followed orders. I had, that had been ingrained in me from the time I, I went into the military at, eight, at uh, 18 years of age. He said, well, we have the big picture. We want you to close this case down here in Bangkok, arrest, we'll arrest the people who have been dealing with you, get them to deliver, you know, an amount of heroin. We, we, by the way, I had already located the people making false bottom suitcases. So we had them located. He said, we're just going to close it down here. And that's an order. And I did, I, you know, I followed orders. I couldn't conceive of, uh, somebody who would, do damage to the American people, to the Constitution. And you have to remember that this is during the Vietnam War, and this is what you, you started this question going in this direction, if you're not regretting that. And no, 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 not at all. And let me just say that, that the reason why I asked you about Vietnam, Mike, was because I think the parallel is that that was a war not to be won, just like the drug, the drug war. Well, I, I think everybody knows that it was not, but you haven't heard this angle of it. Uh uh, so the arrest went down, and we alerted um, the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics to the case, and a fellow who I've been friends with ever since, his name was Tommy O'Grady, you know, realized that I was there for the first time, and and uh, we had signals, elaborate signals worked out. The Thai police were so corrupt that we couldn't even tell them until the very last minute that these people were coming to deliver drugs to my hotel. Uh, heroin to my hotel. It's the Siam Siam Intercontinental Hotel. It was on Sukhumvit in in Bangkok. Uh, and, uh, those of you old enough to, or those of you who travel in to Bangkok, you'll recognize that. It's kind of like the Times Square of New York in in Bangkok. And uh, the uh, the two fellows, Gary and Mr. Gash, show up with the heroin, and I give the signal, and none of the Thai police move because these guys. Uh, untouchable in Thailand. They're not moving. And they're looking at me, and I, I'm not taking the drugs. I'm not giving them the money as I was supposed to be giving them. And, and suddenly, Tommy O'Grady, this Federal Bureau of Narcotic agent, realizes what's happening, and he bounds across Sukhumvit himself, an American agent in Bangkok, and he jumps these two guys and knocks them down on the ground. Then the Thai police had to take action. So he had an American cop uh, basically making the arrest in Bangkok. And uh, I go back to the U.S., and I'm given a U.S. Treasury Special Act award for the case. I think it was the first case of its kind where uh, an undercover agent went worldwide. We got the, the, the smuggler, the financier in New York, the financier in Florida, the, the source of 
heroin in Bangkok, the people making false bottom suitcases, all of that. So I, I got a U.S. Treasury Act award and a check. Hold on to your hat now for $250. And, <laughs> and that was it. Uh, I mean, that was a lot of money back in the 70s, though. The, uh, what, what was the $250 for? Uh, the cash award for, for this special act. This, a bonus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you know, it comes with a plaque and a check. Uh, so uh, maybe four or five months goes by, and Al Seely, my boss, gives me, I became the expert on Thailand because of that experience. And another agent, Lou Culver, has a case. And Lou Culver was an ex-homicide detective uh, for, in, for the New York City Police. And we partnered up for a case where the allegations were incredible that uh, heroin was being smuggled in the body of dead GIs from Vietnam. And we, we sat down and there was an informant involved, a GI, uh, and I got to debrief him along with Lou for several days in, in setting up how we were going to catch uh, them smuggling, uh, you know, heroin in, the, in dead bodies and body bags. This, by the way, is the only real body bag case. Everything else you've seen in the movies is pure BS. It's not real. This is the only real case that we ever had where we investigated it. And, uh, but, and when you hear uh, why it never came, why it never happened, you'll understand the tie-in to Vietnam. Um, in talking to this guy, what I learned from the informant was that the source of the heroin being smuggled into the body, body into the U.S. in body bags was the same source in Chiang Mai that CIA stopped me from going after. Same source. Later, not too much later, I would learn that it all came under the rubric of junkie tax. U.S. US government Senate would not fund the Vietnam War any further. Our allies in Vietnam supported themselves and the CIA operations by selling drugs to the U.S. That's the junkie tax. The CIA had to protect them to keep the Vietnam War rolling and our allies out there in the field in Vietnam both working with our soldiers and selling them and giving them heroin. And it sounds like madness, but that's our foreign policy is total madness, absolute madness. And that was the beginning of my exposure to the realities of this war on drugs. And of course, when it, the events in, in uh, The Big White Lie, in the book, The Big White Lie, it happened not too many years later. And I was sent to, uh, I was stationed in Buenos Aires, Argentina and was able to infiltrate the uh, Roberto Suarez organization. And that was the organization called, before Congress, the biggest, the most powerful cocaine distributing organization on the face of the earth. Uh, Emilian Rodriguez was the Medellin cartel money launderer convicted of laundering something like a billion dollars in secret session before Congress, and I have the transcript of, of this session, told our Congress that the biggest drug trafficker on earth was Roberto Suarez, the person we had, the person we could have taken down with the big white lie. We had him. Only as we, as I detail in the big white lie, a, a book that is supported, I was paranoid by this time, so every conversation in the big white lie comes from a tape recording. This is not anything that anybody can argue about or this is not anything that some you know 
penguin walking journalist can turn around and say, well, conspiracy theory. No, no, it's not a conspiracy theory. I put what, what these people don't understand is that probably 80% of the people in federal jails are there for conspiracy. It is conspiracy theory. You're right. It's conspiracy crime. We could have taken down half the, half the Bolivian government at that time, uh, half the Colombian government from our undercover operation. All kinds of politicians were involved in it, but as we detail in uh, in our in the big white lie, it was sabotaged. The whole case was sabotaged by Central Intelligence, Department of Justice, uh, people within the Drug Enforcement Administration, who I assume uh, were really Central Intelligence. You know, their cover is DEA. Was George H. W. Bush the CIA director at the time, by chance? Uh, no, uh, not at, not at that. You know, he may, you know what? He may have been, uh, I, I didn't recall. Again, I was a soldier in the field, you know, at that particular time, it, it, what got me and my part of the investigation that, you know, brought it back to CIA, uh, happened in South America. I, my sources were dead on. And since that time, if you go on uh, YouTube, you can find a uh, you can find the head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, and uh, I put it up there on YouTube. That's it, 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 what did I call it? CIA are drug smugglers. Just put that in on YouTube. CIA are drug smugglers. The head of DEA in 1993 looked at the cameras on 60 Minutes and said to Mike Wallace, "There's no other way to put this. Uh, Central Intelligence are drug smugglers." Now. Had we that that was involved in a, in a case of central intelligence assets from Venezuela, who were caught smuggling a ton of cocaine, but the fact is that's their whole history in South America. They smuggled more drugs, ten times more drugs into the United States than the than the Medellin cartel. So if you string the two things together, you read the big white lie, and you understand what Congress just refused to look at when that book came out. Uh, and then see years later had had the the head of DEA came out when the big white lie came out it should have shut down central intelligence it should have had them starting brand new with a whole new agency because they're so out of control they they so run they are so much the tail that wags this country that i i don't know if whether there's uh, any way an american now can can correct this horrific situation that, that is so out of hand do you think the CIA really is the one in charge? And, and you know, Kennedy, JFK wanted to get rid of them and, and, you know, break it in pieces. Is this one of the reasons why? Well, a lot of different people. You mean they killed Kennedy? I don't, I, I don't really. I honestly look, I'm a, uh, I'm a career investigator and I looked at it. I spoke. I, I in fact, was uh, sent to CIA to uh, Secret Service. For this period of time, DEA wanted me to be to run. Um, a, an executive protection branch for the Drug Enforcement Administration. So to do that, they sent me to school with the uh, uh, Secret Service and some of the people who were involved in the class. And don't forget, we were all, a lot of us had all gone through the same schools with the U.S. Treasury Law Enforcement Academy at that time. So we were f kind of friends and buddies, and, uh, uh, and some of them had actually taken part in the investigation of JFK, and we'd all heard this, the theories about what really happened and who was behind it. And, uh, you know, we, we'd go out drinking with these guys and 
I remember one of them telling me, Mike, believe me, Oswald was all alone. He was a nut. He was all alone. I have another. Uh, my theory, my theory is, and uh, I don't think anybody's investigated it, is that Oswald, in fact, was an FBI informant who got out of control, as, as all their informants do, and that they should have known what he was going to do, and that may be hidden. But as to uh, anyone in our government being behind it, uh, the covert agencies in our government are so incredibly inept at what they do that it would have been, we, we would have people who took part in it out, you know, blowing the whistle on themselves at this point in our history. They're just so incredibly inept, you can't imagine. And the, the ineptitude is, the proof is everywhere. We did, any, in fact, anyone listening, if you want, I, I, in 1996, um, on uh, WBAI, we did a series of three hours of interviews that we call 100 Years Experience. I have it on a DVD. I'll give it away to anybody who wants it. Just let them contact you, and I'll send you as many as many as you, as many requests as you get. I'll send you the DVDs for this 100-year uh, uh, experience interviews. And on it, we had uh, myself. I had 25 years with the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. We had uh, Dennis Dale, who had 27 years. Most of it served in the Middle East. We had Wesley Swearingen, 25 years with the FBI, and Ralph McGee, who had served 25 years with Central Intelligence. And we were pretty much discussing the ineptitude of these agencies and how they, the, the, they're excellent at covering up that ineptitude by manipulating media. They control media. And the taxpayers pay for it. And we predicted in 1996, we predicted 9-11. We predicted it. We we predicted it. We predicted everything that's happening now. Isn't the the term uh, uh, ineptitude? Isn't that the perfect term for for plausible deniability? In other words, you know, you're saying that uh, you know JFK. So you're saying that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was not a patsy, and also in 9/11 they say, well, you know, our intelligence was down. We were not prepared. Isn't that the perfect excuse? No, it's not. It's it, the, the the thing about it is. They got up before Congress, uh, and they would say the most ridiculous things, like uh, this coffer black. I mean, I wouldn't hire this guy as a Burns detective, but he's one of the top guys in central intelligence. And coffer black is, well, you know, you, you had CIA people. I forget who was questioning him. You had CIA people on two of the actual hijackers months before. Uh, and the next time, then they lost them. And the next time they turned up, uh, you know, they were flying planes into buildings. Well, how come you never notified anybody? And he said, he, he said to our Congress, well, it goes back to the same thing. We had lack of funding. Now, how do you get away with Only in our Congress can you get away with So that what happens, they got more funding for their screw-ups. <laughs> they, they, so many committees have uh, indicated that it would be the best for this country that we shut them down and start them all over again. So if we could predict that ineptitude was going to cause this, uh, you know, this, this monstrous act against uh, allowing this monstrous act to happen, you know, just look at the first uh, World Trade Center bombing. My God. You know, you, you, they had an informant, uh, Imad Salim, and we have a recording of him that we played on, on uh, our radio show several times. Imad Salim was an Egyptian policeman who was an FBI informant, and he 
had infiltrated the blind sheik, and he was there planning the bombing of the first, the first World Trade Center bombing. And the FBI group supervisor didn't trust him. And he was being paid $500 a week. And the FBI group supervisor told the agent handling him that uh, basically tell him if he's going to keep working, he's going to work for nothing. Because, you know, they, he, he had a hard time believing him. And Ahmad taped the phone call. And in the phone call, the agent is trying to convince him to work for no pay. And Ahmad says, you know what's going to happen? He said, we're already building the bomb. That's the bomb that went off uh, in February, nine, uh, February 1993. We're already building the bomb. He says, so if, if you do this, you fire me, the bomb is going to go off, and you won't know who did it. They're already building it. And that's exactly what happened. He wouldn't work for nothing. The bomb did go off, a bomb that we could have stopped. And then the FBI rehired Ahmad Salim, and they paid him a million five to, quote unquote, solve the World Trade Center bombing. And that's what the New York Times gave them credit for. That's what I'm talking about by media culpability in either being too idiotic or too afraid of losing access or whatever it is that controls media to tell the truth to the American people because they should have been absolved then. Well, I call them the, the media the new ministry of propaganda, but let me get back to, to, to your book. Uh, many people who have spoken their truth, Mike, have been eliminated. One of them, and I wish I told you this before when we spoke the first time, I wish uh, he were alive today. I really wanted to have the both of you together. I'm referring to Gary Webb. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning American investigative journalist, best known for his 1996 Dark Alliance series of articles written for the San Jose Mercury News, and later published a book. Gary Webb's death was ruled a multiple gunshot suicide in December 2004. You met Gary, right? Well, you, you go on YouTube, you could see Gary and myself uh, being interviewed Montel Williams. By, by Montel Williams. And I've had Gary on my show a number of times when he was alive. And Gary and I have had, had many conversations. Um, and in fact, I was a witness to the, uh, the, the, the very right-wing media people off camera uh, threatening Gary and telling him, you know, yeah, in fact, my wife heard it too. We were in a limo. And they said, we've got plans for you. We've got plans for your career. Uh, and, you know, and then Gary and I spoke and I said, you know, Gary, the big mistake that you made, and I think I may have said something like this on camera too, is that you, you let people take your great book, your wonderful, accurate book, and turn it into something that it's not. And that is that you let them interpret your book so that you're saying to the world that the central intelligence targeted the black community. And the fact is, that's what's going to lose you credibility in the government. Because anyone who knows the drug trafficking business knows you can't do that. In fact, I spoke to Freeway Ricky Ross. He and I, this, uh, somebody in New York is making a, uh, a video, Mark Levin, I think, uh, a, a documentary about Ricky, Freeway Ricky Ross the very basis of yes, sure. book. and he interviewed me and Ricky Ross and had the two of us uh, speaking together and, uh, and and Ricky Ross admitted to me that so he you know he most of his customers were white he wasn't selling but nobody wanted to hear that do you understand he the way the way drugs flow into this country uh, it goes to a distributor 
you have a big distributor. If you watch drug trafficking of cocaine, particularly in inner city neighborhoods, you'll see 90% of the people coming in to buy the drugs are white. Uh, I wrote about that in a book called Fight Back. So immediately by, by uh, going along with the claim that they were specifically targeting the black community, hey, no, my, my daughter was a crack cocaine addict at that time. Uh, they were, it, it's just, it doesn't work. It's just simply, you know, it's trying to tell people two and two or seven. It, it but, just, but why uh, is it, Mike, that the, the, the majority of the, the drug possession inmates are black? Because it's easy for these guys to focus on where the drug trafficking is. You go into an inner city and that's, you know, that you, that it's obvious, overt, it's out in the open. So I heard somebody talking about this the other day, an attorney, and uh, a very liberal attorney, and he nailed it pretty good. He said, what happens is it's very, most easy to make the arrests there in the inner city. So you arrest these guys for small amounts, and they, you, they all have records for some amount of cocaine. So by the time they're arrested for the second or third time, they get serious jail time. And that's, that's what's happening. Uh, but if you started arresting the white people who are coming in to buy the stuff instead of this, these, poor, these black kids on the street selling it, it would turn, that, that's what I espoused in the book Fight Back. But nobody wants to do that. You would, you would probably win the drug war by attacking the market, not, the, not the, uh, the, the distribution angle of it. And as long as we follow that philosophy, uh, it, it's always going to continue that way. Judges don't say, I'm only going to put black people in jail. No, you, they, they, get, they get some poor black kid who's selling dope for, uh, to, to make a living or, to, or, or because it's the easiest thing to do. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's caught two or three times, and by the time he, gets, he, he hits a judge for the fourth time, he's had three possession charges. He gets serious, serious time. It doesn't happen to a white guy because nobody's focusing on the market. And, Let me and, ask you: the, yeah. the, the in the late '80s, you remember how the the prison complex became, became privatized, and all of a sudden we have this new hip hop and and gangster rap and all this. Do you think there's a correlation between the spike that we saw in the mid to late '80s and the music industry and the privatization of the prison complex? Yeah, well, it, it's advertising. I mean, advertising really works. Uh, I remember, you'll see in The Big White Lie, uh, they, they teamed me up um, with a woman named Sonia Atala, this incredibly beautiful woman who was the biggest drug. You know, Pablo Escobar called her the queen of cocaine because she sold cocaine to him from the Bolivian government. And she was uh, DEA's informant, and I was assigned to work uh, to pose as her lover and her business partner. Uh, that's pretty. That's half the story of The Big White Lie. And while we were we were going down to Miami together. The first time we were spending hours together was on a plane, uh, and we had to get our story together. You know, here we are. From this point on, we're going to act like lovers and business partners in the cocaine business. So we had to sound like we had a history together. And so we, we got pretty intimate talking, and, and uh, she started to tell me all kinds of things came up in the conversation. And she said, you know, right now, and uh, this was 1983, she said, right now, um, the, the drug that's really taken over street kids in Bolivia is called Pichicata. He said, he said, what they're doing is they're smoking coca base. It's smokable. And he said, it makes them crazy. They get addicted so fast. 
And this was in Bolivia and uh, in towns like Cochabamba and, you know, where they were making massive amounts of cocaine base. And I wrote a report and I, and, and I, I guesstimated that this would be uh, in the U.S. at any time. And with, within a year or two, crack cocaine suddenly made its, its appearance in the U.S. I, I had already predicted it in a report to DEA. This is coming. And what is crack cocaine? Crack cocaine is, is uh, reducing cocaine back to base, back to cocaine base, making it smokable. Nothing more. And, and uh, they, they, at the same time, you had, uh, let's see, I think you had uh, President... Uh, President Carter, President Carter's drug expert, was saying things like, "Cocaine is the most benign of the illegal drugs," and you know. Then Reagan came in, and he was he he turned that around. But uh, there, there were so many people already using cocaine and hyping it. It sells, you know, just because you say it's bad. I, my 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 opinion about Partnership for a Drug Free America ads, the billions that they spent. On this is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs. That uh, sold the drug. Just because you say something's bad and you put an image up on the screen, doesn't doesn't mean you're talking people out of it. That does not work. It doesn't work that way. Well, look it, at we, the movie Scarface and Miami Vice. That uh, and I love Miami Vice, but uh, it glamorized it. You got it, my friend. You, you know, you when you put it up on the screen, what you're actually doing is you're introducing the thought of drugs to people who had no thought of it before. That's advertising, and it, it works. It works incredibly. It really works well. Absolutely. You also lost your son in 1991, right? Yeah, my boy, my son Keith was a New York City uh, policeman. He was a sergeant, and he was uh, he was killed by a crack addict when my son tried to stop an armed robbery going on at an ATM machine. Uh, yeah, I did. I lost my boy. So you have had a lot of people close to you lose their lives because of this. Do you still think that the war on drugs, I call it the war for drugs, by the way. I, you know, I've told the story many times here, but uh, when I moved to the desert in Tucson, I uh, went to a social gathering and I was standing next to this this woman in her late 50s, probably. She was, she told me she, after a few drinks, she said, I'm a former CIA agent. And she looked at the city lights and said to me, you see those lights? 50% of those lights are on because of the drug world. Without drugs, you'd see this town probably off completely. Lights would turn off. What do you say about that? I don't, you know, drugs, if you want to see the, the effect of the, the, the wild import of cocaine, is I, when I first went down to Miami to work, uh, the airports like Fort Lauderdale were about the size of a big gas station. Uh, you, you, it was a, an amazing transition during the eighties. All of it, they call it the gold coast. This is all cocaine. You want to see cocaine money? Just drive down the coast of Miami into Miami city and look at those monster towers and condos and that. cocaine finance, all of that. All of yeah. That. Go to Brickell and South beach. You, you, that, that's all came from cocaine financing. You're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars. And Felix Milian Rodriguez, when he testified, before Congress, again, the Medellin cartel money launderer, among the things that America never heard that they're only going to hear on your show, is he testified that the Medellin cartel donated, made uh, money laundering deals, and he was the guy to make them, with every major U.S. bank, and they knew, they knew that the drug, it was cocaine money, drug money. 
and they made deals. They met in Panama, and we didn't indict one. We did not indict a single one of these banks. So uh, then we go to the words of um, Michel Chusadowski, who was uh, an advisor to the uh, International Monetary Fund. I was invited to speak in Paris for an organization, a government-sponsored organization called the Geopolitical Drug Watch. And uh, I had never met Michel Chusadowski before, but he, he got up on stage and he, he said this word in front of a huge international audience of experts and journalists. He said that uh, if America stopped buying drugs tomorrow, it could conceivably cause an international banking crisis. Yep. That, I've heard that before. Yeah. And uh, you heard it from one of the, the great financial minds of, of, uh, of the century. Catherine uh, Austin Fitz says that too. You've got this, and if you read my books, Triangle, uh, Deep Cover, and The Big White Lie, these are the two cases where DEA deep cover teams actually got into a position to do immense economic damage to the to the drug trafficking centers of this world. Lock up government heads, lock up banks. We were in position in these two cases, and it, you, you don't need any training to read these books and understand that uh, what I'm saying is the truth. And in both cases, we were sabotaged by our own government, by central intelligence. In Deep Cover, a New York Times bestseller, I accused the Attorney General of the United States at that time, Edwin Meese, of blowing the cover of this undercover mafia team. Blowing our cover. Now, this is a New York Times bestseller. If it weren't true, it's as libelous as hell, and Meese sued everybody, but he didn't sue me. You got to ask yourself why. What about Kiki Camarena? Do you think that his well, cover was blown by one of us? Kiki Camarena was, you know, we had a small group of people in, uh, in DEA. Very small. I mean, everybody works undercover, but this very small, very exclusive group, uh, which I was a member and Kiki was a member, would go into other countries, it's deep cover, and literally live unarmed. Uh, by your acting ability. And, and so when Kiki was tortured to death uh, after having been arrested by Mexican policemen in Guadalajara and slowly tortured to death, and they tape-recorded his cries as they stuck a white-hot tire iron up into his body through his rectum. And oddly enough, those recordings were recovered from guess who? Central Intelligence, and nobody asked any questions as to how they got it. Those recordings were recovered through Central Intelligence. Well, in, in Deep Cover, if you read the chapter, Waiting for Trial, I detail how we linked people in DEA to the protection of those responsible for killing Kiki Camarena. I took it, I took it personally. I still carry it around with me that nothing was done. These people are named. The, the, uh, it's in the chapter called Waiting for Trial in Deep Cover. And nothing, nothing, nothing was done. When Bill Moyers, Deep Cover, was voted uh, one of the, one of the uh, ten most censored by media books on Project Censored by Bill Moyers. Well, Bill Moyers, off camera, before we went on the air, said to me, and uh, that, by the way, is on YouTube. You can see the, my interview with Bill Moyers on YouTube. Uh, the, the off-camera Bill Moyer said to me, your book, 
his sources told him that Deep Cover was the best read and least talked about book between the beltways. That is Congress. Everyone in Congress read the book. Nobody talked about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Because it, it, it should have upset the whole apple cart. It, it should have had heads rolling, people being arrested. But they would not do that. We have a Congress that is, has no willpower to do anything real other than, than have meetings. And I urge everyone listening to get the book, read the, the chapter, uh, Waiting for Trial. And that goes, we, we name the people who we found were protecting the killers of, of, uh, of Kiki Camarena, protecting, protecting the most criminal Mexican government in, in, in that country's history. And they've had some pretty bad criminals. And people within our government, including DEA, were protecting them, acting to protect them. So, well, I always say that uh, Congress has one religion and one religion only. That's called re-election. So they're going to lose re-election funding. But let me just read this from your book, if I might. Sure. Quote, the suits, politicians, and bureaucrat, bureaucrats uh, are more the enemy in a real war on drugs than any drug dealer who ever lived. It is their mistakes, false promises, and ineptitude that keep us on a path to more useless death and destruction. They, like the generals and the politicians of Vietnam, don't gamble with their own lives. They risk those of others. Their primary concerns are public image, their individual careers, and the funding of their election campaigns and bureaucracies. They are the ones who fear the words of the frontline soldier. So I guess you don't get along with them either, right? Well, I, I never did. I have no respect for people. I, you know, I, again, one of the... Well, for, let me stop for a minute and congratulate myself. I forgot I had written that, but, you know... <laughs> I, Congratulations. <laughs> uh, that, that nails it. Um, uh, I, uh, I have no respect. When you see, you know... Particularly when I see undercover agents who are killed in the line of duty, and what do you see before the camera? Uh, you know, up there in their suits, looking like they they live lives of danger, uh, are a bunch of suits who the only reason they have guns is to keep themselves from being mugged for their badges. You know, they uh, they 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 don't expose themselves. They don't they they don't put their lives out to. Uh, uh, to live up to the oaths that they took, they 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 just their oaths are to the organization, they to the maintenance and the the uh, protection of the image of the organization, and that's why you know I, I again let people contact you and I will send you as many copies of 100 Years Experience. We cover all of this and we put it together in how we predicted 9/11 in this tape. Now we made it in 1996. We predicted 9/11. How do you do that? Uh, and more to come. And right now, if you if if you read uh, uh, anybody who reads Triangle of Death, uh, not Triangle, uh, the uh, uh, Deep Cover and the Big White Lie. Now, if you read those books and it doesn't change you, you have to wonder about yourself. My God, you, you know, if you if you if you read these books and aren't moved into like questioning your congressman and questioning your senator and and saying you know this this happened uh, all these years ago but this these books if they're true they they're saying that the whole war on drugs is a sham and a lie and that it's continuing and we and it's continuing at the cost of our our, our civil rights our constitution uh, you know as a trial consultant and an expert witness I go to jail you cannot believe what is being done to people because uh, uh, under this philosophy of you know 
if, if, if they're uh, if they're involved in drugs, they deserve what they get. It's just not true. Uh, the amazing the amazing things that are done under under the rubric of war on drugs are still stultifying to me right to this day. Let me ask you, you, you say that you predicted uh, 9-11. Do you believe in the official story? Well, I, I believe that, uh, I, what I believe is that this incredible, monstrous ineptitude uh, it resulted in 9-11. I, I, these people aren't smart enough. I, you have to, give me a, like, let me give you an example of how 9-11 could have been stopped. Uh, 40 days, was it, no, 30 days prior to 9-11, um, a, the, uh, the 20th hijacker was arrested. What's his name? Uh, you know, just escapes me for a moment. Yeah, I know what you mean. He, he, yeah, he, he, he was arrested, and he was, he was arrested in a, in a motel in Phoenix where he was taking flight lessons. And uh, Zachariah Musawi, Zachariah Musawi, and, and he, what was he arrested? He, he was arrested because his flight instructors had to call up the FBI and, and not once, but several times to say, do you understand this guy is take, he's, he's, he's speaking Arabic, he's paying cash for flying lessons for jum, jet, jumbo jets, he's not interested in landing, all he wants to learn is taking off and how to make turns. I mean, you know, somebody ought to come here, do you understand the damage this guy can do? So, Musawi is arrested about 30 days before 9-11, and they get Musawi's uh, uh, laptop computer, and he's arrested by immigration. FBI, I don't think, ever talked to him. And the FBI asked for permission from their legal branch to go into the guy's computer. And the legal branch says, no, you don't have... Uh, we don't have legal right to go into it. So nobody goes into Musawi's computer. And of course, as we all now know, 9-11 happens 30 days later. The first statement of the FBI when confronted with this is he had nothing whatsoever to do. Our investigation said this guy had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. But, but take, take Tim Osman. Tim Osman, uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, the CIA name was Tim Osman. And we used him during the Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan Soviet War. Freedom fighter. The, Right, but do you think that he actually conducted all of this from a cave in Afghanistan or Pakistan? Well, if you look at what was really done, I think it's consistent. I mean, there's no reason not to believe it, because the whole thing was such a slipshod operation. Uh, and it, 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 the operation itself, there was no high tech involved, no great trickery. Uh, it, 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 depended, it depended on American laziness and ineptitude for it to go off. And they would they they were a hundred percent dead on in doing that. This was this was just a, a Rube Goldberg put together operation that, in my opinion, had to be something done in a cave, and it worked. It simply worked. The incredible worked, and it was so embarrassing. The the FBI's actions, CIA's actions, were so ridiculously embarrassingly bad. We had predicted it again uh, back in 1996. That terrible, terrible. Um, terrorist acts were going to happen because of this ineptitude, it, and it's real, and no one in America knows how inept these guys are because mainstream media is so completely controlled. And so mainstream media itself is complete. You know, I, again, another article I wrote, I urge people to, to read. It's called Mainstream Media, the Drug War, the Drug War Shills. It's a, an essay I wrote in Christina Borgeson's really fine uh, media critique called Into the Buzzsaw, won all kinds of media awards. Well, 
my essay talks about how there wouldn't even be a drug war if it wasn't for mainstream media shilling it and convincing America that there is such a thing. And this goes are on you, right now. Are you familiar with the project for the New American Century from 1997, by chance? No. A, a think tank that had uh, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, William Crystal, Robert Kagan, and a bunch of the people that we all know. Basically, they were saying that we needed a new Pearl Harbor in order to be a catalyst for a new war so that the United States could be the domineering power again. This is public information. But let me let me go back to the, the, the matter at hand here. When and why did you believe in the so-called drug war change? Who, or, uh, who said I believe in the drug war? I don't understand. No, no, no. When and why did you believe in the so-called drug war change? When did you realize that the people behind the scenes were actually not who you thought they were. In other oh, words, beginning, beginning, beginning with my experience in Vietnam, but I, I didn't want to believe that. Uh, then the experience was compounded uh, in in uh, South America when I was working there, and that's in the big white lie. The final book that I'm going to write is going to be Suarez itself. I got to go into detail, and then the culmination was in the events that happened in Operation Trifecta, Deep Cover, where. And, and during those years, the process of going through those things, I learned a couple of things. One is, uh, what was it, Three Days of the Condor? You see that movie? Yes, At yes, right. At the end right. of it, those classic lines when they talk to the Robert Redford character, the CIA guy talks to the Robert Redford character, and he's, he's about to walk in to the Washington Post and blow the cover on, on this incredibly you know, deadly lying criminal CIA and and uh, the uh, the character I forget his name is the actor looks at him and says, "What makes you think they're going to believe you?" And that's the end of the movie. And the fact is, I understood that. I, I understood that likely uh, I, I had experience with that. As I detail in the Big White Lie, I actually wrote a letter to Time Magazine. Newsweek magazine to two journalists covering the, the uh, South American drug war on embassy stationery from my office as the country attache for the Drug Enforcement Administration. Return receipt signed that it was delivered, and, it's, and that is in the book. And uh, the first thing that happened is I was put under investigation. Journalists, uh, Stephen, Larry, Stephen Strasser, Larry Roder and Stephen Strasser, they never contacted me. I can't say they got it because I couldn't make their signature out on it. I have the uh, return receipt, but I got to assume they got it. And uh, uh, I was put under investigation, and they and uh, a temp was made on my life. So I understood how what I knew at the end of this process of learning this is that if you if you blow the whistle, as someone once said. The odds of your survival are a lot better playing Russian roulette. I understood that I couldn't, I can't uh, depend on media to even print the story, no less protect me, that you're out there on your own. And if you'll notice in this Obama administration, they're, they're shutting every possible door for whistleblowers. Absolutely. Every possible door. And, and so why would, so, and at that point in my career, I was, you know, I was a government employee with two kids and a wife, actually three kids and a wife. And, uh, the, uh, uh you know, I didn't have any money in the bank. I had not, uh, you know, I still had a mortgage and, 
uh, and every kind of problem that comes with it. And I, I knew it at, at best I would be fired if not jailed and no one would come to my aid in spite of having documented everything uh, with every conversation you see in the big white lie and in deep cover uh, by the way uh, if you guys want to get the book it's very cheap now on, on ebooks uh, you, you know go to Michael Levine author I think let me see I don't even know my own Michael Levine author or no Michael Levine books books Michael Levine books that see I know your websites Mike yeah, yeah I know uh, anyway just uh, and I knew at that point uh, one of the reasons uh, I, I didn't write uh, any of these books was until I wrote uh, deep cover was the first I wrote but I waited until I was getting ready to retire and when I wrote deep cover the uh, Delacorte, Delacorte Press understood that, uh, you know, I was in danger. And they wouldn't even announce that there was a project until I was off the job and safely retired. What would have happened if you had have spoken before? Your retirement would have been a thing of the past, I guess. Oh, I never would. They would have, they, they would have jailed me. I, let me tell you, the first show I did, and that's on YouTube now, the very first time, the very first time you will ever hear an insider say, the drug war is a fraud. Was on was was on the uh, Phil Donahue show in 1990. The very first time any insider came out and said that, and that was me. Uh, but there's a story that you you don't. It's on YouTube, by the way. That moment, uh, minutes before that moment, I was in the green room, and I got a phone call in the green room. You know, somebody comes in, one of the people working for Donahue, and says. Uh, Mike Levine, there's a phone call for you. Now, my wife was with me, and nobody knew I was there because Donahue had been a last-minute appearance for me. No one knew I was there. It would not have happened if uh, if it hadn't been a last-minute invitation. Well, what? It's not that it wouldn't have happened. It's that this phone call is incredible because it came from DEA headquarters, and. They were calling me in the green room, and one of the top people in DEA is on the phone, and he said, Mike, I'm calling you because I like you. He said, right now, there are 10 lawyers going over your book, page by page, looking for a reason to indict you. Indict you for what? Well, I didn't know what. I had no idea what. You know, some giving away government secrets or what. One of the things, one of the, one of the, uh, uh, one of the feelings I had at the time that I said out loud is many times, you know, did I, did I violate some kind of secrecy? You know, uh, I really don't know, but my feeling was this, and I don't think they wanted this made public. It was one of the reasons that uh, they decided not to and try and indict me. And that is that I had taken an oath to protect the constitution and the people of the United States. I had also taken an oath to protect the secrets of the agency. Now, the events that happened in my books, The Deep Cover and The Big White Lie, clearly show that I was faced with a choice. Which oath do I protect? Because the very people I was working for were threatening the Constitution and the people who were paying my salary. Now, I don't think they wanted America or our Congress to face that choice. So they decided to pretend this didn't exist. The book didn't exist. And that's why it became uh, 
one of the most ten sensitive ten ten most censored books by media, and I was featured on the the uh, uh, project Project Censored by Bill Moyers, and that's also on YouTube. I urge people to see it. So the choice was made not to indict me, but I, you know I told this this uh, I, I, you know I don't want to name him, although I could. Uh, he he was second in command of DEA at that time, and he and uh, he said, I I said, you know, if you thought you were going to frighten me, you have succeeded beyond your wildest imagination. You you know, I, but it's too late. You know, I can, I'm I'm going on camera in a few minutes, and I'm not turning back. And then he said these words, Mike, remember a peanut butter sandwich, and that was the last I heard from him. Now, peanut butter sandwich in DEA has a significance. Uh, there was a DEA agent by the name of Santi Barrio who uh, worked for me at one time and worked with me. And Santi Barrio was Italian-born. He was a, one of the best deep cover agents DEA would ever have. He also worked for Central Intelligence um, as a deep cover agent. And uh, Santi was a guy who... Uh, He's just an amazing, amazing guy. And when I was stationed in uh, in Argentina, Sante was uh, stationed. He had one of the top jobs in Mexico. And then I heard Sante had been arrested on a, a border town. Uh, I forget the Rio, one of the, one of the border towns, uh, for conspiracy to smuggle heroin and money launder with. And uh, his his main informant was the person who had done him, had set him up for this arrest. Sante, of course claimed you know that it's a setup and i'll and I'll, I'll prove it in in court no problem he's in jail in this border town jail and sante eats a peanut butter sandwich and falls down in convulsions the first uh, uh the first test of sante his blood while he's in a coma is that there's strychnine he he stays in a coma for about a month and dies the final cause of death was ruled uh, asphyxia because of a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> so, so it was a poison? Yeah, this, there's an article called The Strange Death of Santi Barrio in Time Magazine. I have the article, but uh, you know what I'm saying is no BS. It's, you know, life is so much stranger than fiction. So here's this head of DEA reminding me about a peanut butter sandwich that everyone in DEA knew means your, your assassination. Absolutely. And Mike, we have to take our one and only break. But when we come back, I want to discuss also Gary Webb's death and, and Kiki Camarena's way of dying also. Yeah. I want to know if this was a, a, a sign for other people to shut up. And also, at one point you were part of what could be the biggest drug deal in history. The dollar value of the whole transaction, $75 million. The wholesale price, not the retail price, the wholesale price of staggering $3.6 I want to know more about this this that deal that you were very closely involved in. Sure. Tell us how the audience how to uh, get in touch with your work, listen to your radio program, buy your books. Okay, uh, michaellevinebooks.com. michaellevinebooks.com is uh, a website we, we I just put up. Um, but the, my radio show is Expert Witness Radio. Dot org and in the archives you can hear pretty much everything I'm talking about. But for for uh, the big white lie and deep cover, go to michaellevinebooks.com uh, and anybody who wants those the hundred years experience CDs, let them con 
uh, let them contact Mel and uh, Mel you just uh, tell me how many CDs to send you and you've got them it's free of charge I want I just want you to I want all you guys out there to be aware be wise and understand what you're living in don't great thank yourself. you yeah thank you well I'm here with my special guest Michael Levine don't go anywhere this is going to get deeper when we come back this is Mel Fabregas and you are listening to Veritas don't go anywhere Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is John Labutlier, and you're listening to Veritas. 